Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And Eric, welcome. Thank you so much. Really good to be speaking with you today. Um, we we had a, an earlier call where we were uh, just kind of setting this up and, and uh, aligning on things. And one of the things that um, particularly interested me about Clean Yield is the whole topic of why investors might choose to put their money or some of their assets into regenerative agriculture. Maybe you could give us uh, some insight onto that. Sure. Um, I, I think it's part of a, a broader trend of people focusing more on uh, on food in terms of both health and environmental impact and realizing that uh, the agricultural system, the food system are a uh, fundamental, uh, fundamentally critical part of any kind of sustainable society. Um, and we've seen an, an evolution of thinking even within that from um, reducing damage and getting away from pesticides to really starting to view regenerative agriculture as part of the big solution we have in terms of climate change, in terms of uh, rebuilding community and uh, rebuilding health. And uh, so among our client base, uh, we are based in Vermont, which has a, a vibrant local food economy. Uh, and I think uh, it's, it's in the water and in the air, the people um, realize the importance of, of that in so many ways. And so our client base is focused, um, or at least a subset of it is focused on food and agriculture as an exciting opportunity to take their money and put it into something that's really having a positive impact uh, beyond just getting it out of Wall Street um, and investing locally that food is one of the the most powerful ways that they can uh, leverage their wealth to make a positive, um, have positive impact locally. Would you say this is a, a typical profile for this kind of concerned investor? Uh, you know, I think we've seen an increase in focus on on food and ag. I don't know um, because we are in Vermont and uh, there are some unique characteristics here. I, I, it's hard for me to to know um, 
on a wider scale if the same thing is being seen um, in other parts of the country. I certainly know that there are pockets of great interest and from seeing the appeal of the slow, slow money, the, the, the book, the idea, the organization, which has uh, um, resulted in a, a grassroots effort and a lot of interest in uh, relocalizing uh, investment dollars and again with a focus on the food system I think it is a, uh, an idea and a movement that's that's um, in a uh, where the timing is right in terms of what's going on with the food system and people's consciousness about their dollars and and how they can um, be better put to use I, I know from my time living in Vermont that um, Vermont has always been an early mover on, on particularly on on social and local uh, development, or rather the the push to localize development might be a different way to say that. Um, I'm familiar with that expression: "As Vermont goes, so goes the nation." Uh, uh, I, that's yeah, I, I and I, I mean I do think that the part of that is true. I think there are some unique characteristics to Vermont that give us um, some advantages in in pushing this forward, uh, you know, and the interest goes right to the highest levels of state government. So there's great support uh, for sustainable agriculture or regenerative agriculture as an economic development tool. Uh, That was more true in the previous state administration uh, under Governor Pete Chumlin. Uh, We now have a Republican governor. Uh, He's Vermont Republican. Uh, and so he, he does value agriculture, but uh, the focus on regenerative agriculture or sustainable agriculture is not as great as it, as it once was. But there's really an appreciation that there's real uh, job growth and um, community impact from supporting our agricultural system. And so that provides a, uh, a backdrop that makes it a lot easier for uh, agricultural entrepreneurs to uh, to thrive in the state, and I know that that's not true everywhere. Even if you cross the Connecticut River into New Hampshire, there's not that same kind of ecosystem of government support, nonprofit support, um, and uh, ph- uh, philanthropy and investment support that help make the whole system work better. So we do have a unique opportunity to build something here, uh, but hopefully through demonstrating that that it can work, um, that's something that others will follow. So I'm curious about Clean Yield as a a company. Um, What's roughly speaking, what what percentage of of focus would be on uh, local money, local, local economies, and maybe even more specifically on the food ecosystem? Yeah, so um, we, uh, we manage about $375 million. And of that, about um, somewhere between 15 and 17 million now are in what we call impact investments. Now, all of our investments are socially and environmentally screened, but a lot of that is in publicly traded stocks and bonds. So we invest... Um, the nest eggs essentially for uh, high net worth individuals and families. Our minimum account size is a million dollars. So we're dealing with um, with people with significant investable means. 
who want to align their money with their values. And so, again, so about 95% of our assets are in more traditional securities, and about 5% is in the impact investing space. And of that, probably three quarters is in something food or ag related. Um, so somewhere 10, 10 or $11 million uh, ballpark. Um, and uh, that ranges from direct investments in local companies that are involved in, in the food movement. For example, uh, high mowing organic seeds was our very first um, direct impact investment in Vermont uh, back in 2007. Uh, it's still going strong. And uh, at the other end of the spectrum, we have something that's a more uh, conventional looking vehicle, which is a sustainable forestry investment in uh, the Lime Forest Fund, which uh, buys forest land and puts conservation easements on it and then shows that it can be managed sustainably. Um, and so uh, there's, there's a range of type of vehicles we use, but our clients have really driven this, uh, that they, uh, particularly some family foundations that have a focus on, uh, on agriculture uh, as part of a solution to, in moving towards sustainability, um, really pushed us to put more of their assets into this space. And that allowed us to actually add other clients in to some of these investments and build this whole area of our, um, of our business. So it sounds like your, your typical investor is fairly well informed in, in that they know what they're after. They know the sorts of areas they'd like to impact and they've done some research before coming. Well, I would say there are a handful of clients who really have driven that, who really um, have put a lot of thought into how they want their money invested and have focused on these areas. Um, we have other clients who have a, a vaguer notion of uh, wanting to put their money into enterprises doing good, good stuff, good work, and that they like the idea of sustainable food, um, but not with the same level of, uh, as you say, of research and um, and uh, expertise in the area, but because we have these um, key clients who have driven it, that has opened up the, these opportunities. And um, nobody comes to us and says, I don't want to do sustainable agriculture. I want to focus on, I mean, there are some people who want to focus on different areas, but um, everybody likes sustainable agriculture and, and, and good food. Um, Vermont being a state which is fairly well balanced between forestry and, and agricultural um, activity. That's interesting to me as well, because normally when we talk about regenerative agriculture, I think the, the impression most people get, the image that comes to their mind is, is farms. Um, and when they think farms, they think you know, production of, of, of um, well, sheep or cows um, or vegetables and you know, things that deliver food to the table. But in reality, the, the classic Vermont farm is mixed. It's, it often has a, a stand of forest on it. Sometimes it's, it's more forest than agriculture. And I think that's quite interesting that you're able to move back and forth between those or among those. Um, I'm kind of curious about your take on that because from my perspective, the way in which we treat the land is, is 
is one of the objectives. It's, it's one of the benefits of moving things into a more regenerative model again. And if you take a watershed perspective, well, the forests are equally essential. If you take a biodiversity, obviously there's a, there's a flow of organisms back and forth, um, and that flow is part of what keeps both systems healthy. So, yeah. Yeah, go on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, and there was, you know, I was, I've been involved in, in Slow Money, um, the, the organization Slow Money and the idea Slow Money for, for more than a decade now. And um, going right back to the early conversations with, with Woody Tash, the founder of Slow Money, about this very issue about whether we, sh we should include fiber um, and forests as part of the focus of Slow Money. And uh, to me, it's never been a question that, that it is about um, what the, the term we use in Vermont often is the working landscape. And forests are an integral part of that, and they desperately need um, attention. The, the, that um, has been a big economic driver in the past, and right now it's in crisis because a lot of the mills um, in northern New England have closed and the markets aren't as accessible for, um, for foresters um, or the forestry industry. And um, as well as the maple industry, which is an important um, cultural and economic um, factor in Vermont and is threatened by climate change. So, um, you know, we're, we're actually seeing that, that the projections are that, that maple is really gonna be threatened over the next 50 years as, um, as the climate warms, and essentially the maple forests migrate north northward that uh, may benefit Canada, but it's gonna be harder for um, the Vermont maple industry to survive. Um, and so those um, folks in, in, in entrepreneurs and, and enterprises really do need um, access to capital as well. Um, and we've looked, for example, at uh, a, um, a wood pellet um, company in in what's called the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, the Northeast corner of the state, um, to uh, develop a uh, a business there um, that would help develop markets for for forestry in um, that part of the state. Excuse me, sorry about that. Um, and uh, and so that hasn't come to fruition yet, but it's something that we would very much like to participate in if if there is an opportunity. Um, so I, I see it again. I love the, the approach to thinking about it in, in watershed terms, um, or working landscape terms, but, uh, and an area that I'd like to learn more about, and I'm starting to brush up against is, um, silviculture and, uh, these integrated systems of farming and forestry, uh, that I think are, are more broadly accepted in, in Europe, but we haven't seen much of it here in the Northeast United States anyways, but um, there's definitely some efforts coming along in that area as well that seem very promising. And obviously that has a huge impact on things that are also economic um, strongholds for the state, such as tourism. Absolutely. And, and a part of tourism being fishing. Sure, yep, and leaf peeping is is obviously huge for, for Vermont, right? And, and, uh, and, and agro, agro tourism. Um, and so 
you know, that's that's part of the reason that you do have this broad support for for small farms in Vermont is that people understand that it's not just um, a, a matter of supporting these individual businesses. It's it has so many um, other economic impacts to maintain the, the working landscape. I was talking yesterday with Jesse McDougall from Studio Hill Farm, and one, and one of the things that he was really concerned about is the impacts of the agricultural chemical runoff, which are now starting to manifest in Lake Champlain. And that's, that seems to me very clearly something that, that requires a landscape approach to, to solutionizing it. Um, do you see in, in your work, do you see an increasing awareness of that? Um, I haven't heard about that directly from clients, but it's definitely on my mind and it's, it's a, a real challenge in terms of um, the culture around farming in Vermont. And there's a real defensiveness among conventional dairy farmers around needing to change their practices to deal with runoff and, um, and, and nutrient management. Um, and so I, I don't have great insight on the best way to approach that because we need some real behavioral changes to address it. And um, it does, th again, threaten our, our tourism and, um, and our reputation to have these algae blooms in Lake Champlain, um, Lake Carmi, another one that's threatened in the northern part of the state is uh, experiencing terrible water quality issues. And you know, it's directly traceable back to the, the dairy farms in that part of the state. And uh, we have not done a good job addressing that. And so that's something that I haven't seen an opportunity yet for investors to have an impact there. Um, I mean, we can, we have to remember as investors that, that money isn't always the answer. Uh, and it's the one tool we have in our toolbox. Um, but actually, uh, technical assistance and business planning and training are other critical pieces to um, to developing the 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 entrepreneurs or the enterprises that um, we can then invest in and um, and, and so we don't we don't always have the answer uh, but when there's a need for capital we want to be there and be able to provide appropriate capital in a way that can let these businesses thrive and hopefully um, can, uh, you know, offer some solutions along the way. So that's a really interesting point. Um, and I, I think that it, it's so common for people to think, well, if I can just get some money or if someone with someone right. would just throw some money at this, we would solve it. Um, but clearly it's, it's, it's more nuanced than that. And we haven't even touched on policy. Right. Of course, there is kind of a push-pull between policy and investment to the extent that investors can increase the demand for supportive policy and at the same time, knowing that that investment is waiting to, to find a place to land can encourage policy, um, you know, with, with a, um, maybe it's not a guarantee, but, but at least with a, a good indicator that policy moves will receive a follow-up kind of uh, support uh, in, in terms of helping them to literally ground their intention. 
Um, one of the things that uh, I find really interesting, it's one of the objects of, of doing this podcast series, is really taking a look at, at you know, who are the other sectors that, for instance, Clean Yield needs to interact with in order to keep your game sharp. Um, and where do you feel like you can provide leadership versus where do you maybe wish you had a little stronger uh, support or push from, from other sectors? Uh, interesting. It's, um, I think, again, we have a unique opportunity here. Um, there, we have a program called the Vermont Farm to Plate Initiative. And it was funded by the legislature uh, about six or seven years ago. They did an initial, basically two-year study of the food system, food and ag system, um, in terms of economic impacts and environmental impacts and um, a very holistic approach to, um, to food from, uh, from resource inputs uh, through production and distribution and retail and back into waste and compost and sort of the whole cycle and looking at opportunities. And, um, and then out of that grew a, a 10 year plan for increasing local food production and consumption, trying to, to move the needle on, on how much food is being um, produced and consumed here. Uh, and, uh, out of that grew a network, a really robust network of about 300 organizations in Vermont uh, that touch on all of those aspects of the food system. And there were six working groups. I've been on the farmland access and stewardship working group, which deals with, you know, how difficult it is to transition land from existing farmers to the next generation in an affordable way, as well as things like soil quality, soil health and water quality. Um, but as part of that, you know, I've been in the room with people who I otherwise don't have a chance to uh, touch base with in my day-to-day -day work, which includes um, town planners, um, uh, government folks, university folks, uh, NGO people that all bring unique perspectives on this work that we're trying to advance. And so I've learned a tremendous amount about the reality uh, and the complexity of this whole system through those interactions. And it's really, you know, deepened my understanding of, of what we need to do and how, how clean yield can be helpful. Um, I think it's the, the reverse has been true too, that I think people have been um, enlightened by having a, a money person in the room presenting this perspective of, you know, uh, of th this, this lens that we have in terms of trying to uh, allocate dollars to initiatives that are really going to make a difference and what, how we think about investment returns, which is not necessarily how people usually think about investment returns. Um, meaning that we don't, we're, our clients aren't looking to maximize their dollar returns necessarily. They want to see, hopefully get their money back and make a return, but not a killing. And also want to see social and environmental returns in terms of jobs, in terms of soil health, in terms of food quality, in terms of public health. 
uh, all of those are returns that our investors aren't trying to quantify, but they want they want to qualitatively know that they're that they're making a difference with their dollars. So that's the kind of um, continuous learning that's going on in terms of how we can advance this space. And do you find that there's fairly robust metrics and systems for applying those in terms of measuring the non-monetary returns? No. <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I don't, it doesn't, I don't, our clients aren't calling for that. Um, you know, some of our investees, like High Mowing Seeds, on the 10th anniversary of our original investment, or maybe it wasn't the 10th, maybe it was actually the 5th, but they did produce, um, you know, some metrics about the what what had happened since the initial money was raised in 2007. I guess it was their fifth anniversary to, through 2012 in terms of their impact, the, 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 the acreage that's been planted with their seeds, the number of school gardens that have used their seeds, the number of jobs created, um, all of these types of metrics. But they're anecdotal and um, they paint a great picture. Uh, but we have the luxury that maybe somebody uh, like the MacArthur Foundation or the Ford Foundation that's investing billions of dollars in what they call impact investing and their board or their program officers are saying, well, we need to see these metrics to show that our dollars are being, that there is a return on investment in terms of non-financial terms that we can justify this. Um, we're not requiring our investments to, to prove that in in any sort of quantitative way, um, and I think that's a that is it, it is liberating, um, and and uh, we can see some are more successful than others, both financially and in terms of of how much impact they have. Um, but uh, it's more through the stories than through data at this point. And do you find that that's at all inhibiting or? Or not? Uh, no, I, don't, I haven't. I have not seen it as inhibiting. Um, and but but in terms of, well, I guess can can you flesh out that question more? Inhibiting in what way? Sure. sure. Like um, as you mentioned, someone as someone of of the scale of investment as MacArthur Foundation, for instance, or the Ford Foundation, they're really responding probably to a very different class of investors simply because of the amounts of money they may be drawing down from each right. one and focusing. Um, and those are probably more experienced, seasoned investors coming from a more traditional business orientation. Whereas I imagine the you know private wealth, uh, family funds, and and that sector is more personality driven. It's more passion driven. Um, but there's normally a place where the two cross, and I guess that's where I was looking for. You know, it's it's you know, are people at all holding back and saying, well, look, you know, um, I've 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 supported you guys now for six years running, and I, I really need to see some numbers on this. Yeah, we have not run into that yet. And it's partly has to do with the, um, that we're, we're not operating in, in really in the same venues or the, at the same scale 
as as those folks. So just to to give a sense of the scale, you know, we when we make an investment, uh, it's generally in the range of when we we um, add up all our clients and put them into something, the total investment in any one enterprise or fund is something, you know, in the range of three hundred thousand dollars to um, $750,000. There are a couple exceptions of funds where we have more money in them um, because they're more diversified. But, you know, we're, we're talking uh, investments that those kinds of large foundations could never even consider because it just, it's too much, it would be too much due diligence, too much work for, mm-hmm. for them. You know, if you've got a multi-billion dollar foundation, a $100,000 investment or even a half million dollar investment doesn't move the needle at all and they're they just they're not going to spend the time on it so we don't end up crossing paths that often with those types of of uh so-called impact investors we also um do accept like i said a uh what a below market return so um in terms of financial returns and there are many um people who are trying to pursue impact investing and uh, generate market rate returns. And I think there's a real tension in that. And I don't know that, that that's truly impact investing. Um, it's, it's maybe aligned investing where you're trying to invest in alignment with your values and generate a market return. But, um, but we're, we're, and we do that with our publicly traded stocks and whatnot. But um, in this impact space, what we call impact, you know, we, we have a, um, a lower return bar than, than some folks. And so that's going to separate us in terms of the types of investments we look at. So that brings up another question I'm curious about. I've been following impact investment, obviously not with the, you know, the degree of, of expertise you can, you can bring to it, but out of general interest. And I've been doing that for several years, both in Europe and in the U.S., um, and I guess it's now starting to take off a bit in Australia. Um, and I don't get a sense that there is a great deal of agreement on what constitutes an impact. Um, how, as we said, you know, how to measure that impact. Um, so frameworks and even vocabulary to a certain extent seems less aligned than I would have imagined it would be by now. Well, I'm curious about your sense of that from, well, from where you sit. Yeah, I mean, it's a little frustrating. There was a, there's a recent article, and I'm going to forget uh, who published it, on, on just this question of, of sort of the, the, the definition of impact investing and um, and again, that tension between trying to generate market rate returns while doing while doing it. Um, you know, I because we're not trying to um, attract institutional uh, clients, uh, we we do focus. We have family foundations, but generally, we're staying away from the big public foundations. Um, we I haven't concerned myself too much with that debate. We know what we do. Um, the the impact to us is real and clear and it's authentic and the people who are interested in investing with clean yield can see that and we know that the work that we're doing is is um, is having 
impacts that mean something to our clients and we think are you know moving the needle um and that's good enough for us and so i i don't to me it's not i will let others fight the battle over the the, the boundaries and the definitions i think that's really encouraging because it really speaks to the passion of the investors um you know, yes. As you said earlier, a lot of this is, is driven by them. It's driven by their interests. It's driven by their concerns. Right. To an extent, driven by their knowledge of, the, of what they want to have. Yeah. Care. Right. They're not, and they're not asking us to compromise. You know, they're not frustrated with, oh, it's only getting two and a half percent. You know, you know they, they, they're, they have, we work with them to determine an appropriate percentage, appropriate allocation within their portfolio to be in this space, knowing that it's gonna have a lower return. Now, lower than what? Because when the market crashes or goes into a bear market, the stock market, uh, which it will, I can't tell you when, <laughs> but it will, because it always does eventually, these impact investments tend to hold up really well particularly things like community loan funds, which like Vermont Community Loan Fund or New Hampshire Community Loan Fund, where you're, you're um, putting in money for, for maybe five years at 2% or 2.5%. Um, and uh, when the market goes down 30%, that money doesn't do anything. It just sits there. And so that 2.5% looks awfully good. When the, mar when the stock market's going up 10, 15% a year, um, you know, maybe it doesn't look so great, but over, you know, what, <laughs> in times of turbulence, it's, uh, it's actually could be a really uh, nice piece of the portfolio. So we, we've picked that allocation uh, with our clients in, in a way that's appropriate for their, what their financial goals and needs are. And then um, there's really little friction about, um, about returns within that space once we've done that. We're going to take a break now. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. We're chatting with Eric Becker from Clean Yield Asset Management in Norwich, Vermont. Uh, you mentioned earlier that this is something that you... Um particularly focus on. Um, could you tell us a bit more about that? How that looks, um, maybe an idea of the, kind of the flow of startups who come to you, do they come to you? Do you have to search them out yourself? How does that work? Um, we get a pretty steady flow of, um, of companies. I, I, I do want to step back and say that it's, we actually don't do a lot of startup investing. Most of the um, investments we make are in companies that have shown that they have a successful product or service and they're looking for growth capital. So a little bit later stage. Um, and that has to do with the risk profile 
um, and you know what our clients are comfortable with and what we're comfortable with, what our ex expertise is in. Uh, we are not venture capital investors uh, who um, can make a, build a, a pool of 10 very high risk investments and hope that two are successful and you know the ones that that die it's okay we make up for it by making a thousand percent on the the successful one um that's not really appropriate for this space because there's there's not going to be a google of soil restoration um i mean i don't think uh and it's not really what we're shooting for we're looking at businesses that don't aren't looking to scale dramatically so um so there are folks out there who you know do earlier stage investing but um you know for for a lot of, of these types of businesses it's really comes down to friends and family um to to get that initial capital and then uh once the entrepreneur has demonstrated that they uh have what it takes to start building their business then that's when they tend to come back to us. So we do get people inquiring early on and we say, well, you know, come back in a couple of years once you've shown that, that you're, you're on track and, and that, that the, uh, the product or service um, is something that people want or need. And, uh, and then uh, we, we look at deals. So uh, people find us, we have, um, you know, it's, it's a, again, within the Northeast, it's a kind of small um, community of people who are involved in this type of investing. So we collaborate a lot with other um, folks like um, the Fair Food Fund, um, uh, Fresh Source Capital, Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund, uh, New Hampshire Community Loan Fund has something called Vested for Growth where they're, they're helping um, these types of businesses. So there's a lot of communication between us and we have, we all have our individual, our particular, um, uh, approach and type of capital that we're working with and, but we share information and ideas and, um, and so there, that's how often the, the deal, the deal flow, how, how people find us, how, how entrepreneurs, um, or new fund managers who are developing a fund in, in this arena um, come to us. And how does that, um, well, I, I know that for a lot of startup farmers, so maybe, maybe startups wasn't really the right term for that because um, it, it immediately makes people think of Silicon Valley. Right. Um, but, you know, one of the, one of the, um, one of the biggest hurdles for uh, particularly younger farmers or, or younger want to be farmers is actually getting access to land. Right. And that's something where the impact investment um, strategy can, can actually intervene meaningfully. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it remains a real challenge, uh, especially in uh, places where the development value of land is so much greater than the agri agricultural value of land. So within Vermont, um, there's still cheap agricultural land to be had in the far reaches of the state. There are remote areas where farmland is going for farmland value, but you get anywhere close to um, to Burlington, Vermont, or or even Montpelier, um, the land values are are inflated, and and that's where the markets are. That's where the people are. So 
you know, if you, you can, you can go start a farm uh, relatively cheaply in a remote area, but then you're, you don't have good access to people who are going to um, be your prospective customers. So um, that is a challenge. Uh, we have um, now a relatively long relationship with Iroquois Valley Farms, uh, in uh, which is based in Illinois, uh, but is committed to um, acquiring uh, farmland either already organic or transitioning to organic and uh, and leasing it to farmers under long-term leases and uh, really committed as well to young farmers. They have a, a young farmers program um, and giving farmers an opportunity to build equity and eventually buy the land back. Um, and it's a situation where they're not speculative in terms of the land that they're purchasing. They, Iroquois, will uh, get approached by a farmer that's a tenant farmer who's who's working land that is that they're not secure on and that the owner of the land is considering selling. And the farmer goes to Iroquois and says, this land's coming up for sale. You know, will you take a look at it and consider buying it and leasing it to me? Um, so they're always acquiring land that has a um, a farmer associated with it, and uh, and they're working out a lease arrangement that's going to work financially for the farmer, so the farmer can make a profit and build their their equity, um, and have the incentive to build soil health over the long term and not not mine the soil, and uh, and so they they are now in eight states, I believe. I think they've got thirty two farms. Um, and when we started, it was just a handful of farms and um, they have done an impressive job of sort of just uh, farm by farm, growing it, uh, building their investor base and, um, and paying a decent return to investors. Um, again, it's modest, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the few opportunities to invest directly in organic farmland. Um, other than actually going out and buying a piece of land, which is has immense risks and, or maybe not immense risks, but uh, uh, takes a, a tremendous amount of time um, and knowledge to to manage. Um, and and you know, unless you want to have that relationship yourself with a farmer, this is a way of diversifying it and having professional management. And um, and we're really impressed with with uh, the quality of the Iroquois people. It sounds like a really, really good, good and obvious model. Um, do you see anyone else moving into that space? Yeah, there's actually a second group called Dirt Capital. Um, so Iroquois is based in Illinois, but they've got uh, farms um, throughout the upper Midwest, and they have moved into the Northeast with, I think they have two farms in New York, uh, one in Vermont. Uh, just recently, they happened to acquire a piece of land in, in my town. Um, actually, they did not acquire that piece of land. They, in that situation, uh, because the economics in, in Vermont are with land values are a little challenging, they actually um, provided the mortgage to the farmers, um, a short-term mortgage that allowed the farmers to get on the land. Um, and then uh, hopefully once they've proved their business model to refinance um, with a longer-term lease with, with the bank. Uh, but it's a it's an interesting vehicle uh, and, and shows some creativity in the way they're doing things. Um, a second group called Dirt Capital um, 
has uh, been added as well. Um, the difference between the two is, we and we like them both. We, ha we have invested with Iroquois. We have not yet invested with, with DIRT, but it's something that we're looking at. Um, DIRT um, has a little bit more flexibility because they do not require their farmers to be certified organic. Um, they require them to have regenerative practices or organic practices, but don't necessarily require them to go through the certification process. Um, and they also are a little bit more flexible about their lease terms. Um, it's a smaller operation. It's just a two person operation um, and, uh, and equally great integrity with the Iroquois folks. These are people who are really committed to making the leases work for the farmers and creating the right incentives for taking good care of the land. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really encouraging that, that these models have emerged and hopefully can be replicated in other places. There are some laws that actually make it hard. Uh, there are states that prevent corporate ownership of farmland, um, and these are corporations. Um, corporations has a very bad connotation these days among a lot of people, but in fact, it's just uh, you know a, an organizational structure that allows this to, to happen. And um, but there are some places again in the Upper Midwest where uh, Iroquois Valley cannot acquire farmland. I believe Wisconsin is one of the states. Um, so there are some places where you can't take this approach. But I think there are a lot of opportunities for this to to um, to grow. Great to hear. Um, if you cast your magic lens into the future, 15, 20 years from now, optimally, ideally, um, possibly grounded in uh, what you see as practical as well, where would you like to see um, impact investment? Where would you like to see the crossing over of, of this kind of support with people moving into regenerative? What might that produce? Uh, do you have a do you have something that kind of keeps you going in that way? Yes. <laughs> um, so I'm also a uh, a founding board member of a small startup nonprofit called Soil for Climate. Excuse me, Soil for Climate with the number four in the middle. Soilforclimate.org. Um, and I believe that. Uh, that the, the recognition of soil as a key opportunity and solution for, um, for climate mitigation, it, that, that, that's, that appreciation is growing. And I'm not a big believer in carbon markets, um, but I think that hopefully the financial incentives for uh, managing land uh, in a way that restores soil health and sequesters carbon and water is um, that those economics are going to improve dramatically and that that will really help spur conversion of much more uh, agriculture um, to regenerative practices. So I think 15 to 20 years is probably the right kind of time scale. Um, I mean, and it is entering the mainstream. I saw a headline this morning about uh, Tom Brady's new book about um, his approach to health and 
saying that, you know, most of the food in the supermarket isn't food. It's a food-like product. And he actually talks about soil and talks about the fact that, you know, it doesn't even have the same nutrients because the soil health is, the soil's been depleted. And I'm like, Tom Brady, what is, you know, you know about soil health? Uh, but even the fact that that's entering main, the mainstream in some way and getting into the consciousness is uh, is hopeful to me. And um, obviously we need far more. I think that uh, it, it's, it, we, we have a long, long way to go for, for full appreciation of how critical um, soil and agriculture are to, to planetary health and to human health. Um, but that I feel it's starting to snowball and that in 15 or 20 years, yes, I can imagine um, you know, regenerative agriculture being much more on the scale of where, agri where organic agriculture is today. And, um, and that that's, that has powerful implications for, for the, for good. Absolutely. So you say snowballing, that's, I mean, do you think we're seeing the tip of the tipping point yet? Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's really hard to have perspective because of the echo chamber that we all sort of self-create now with, with social media and with who we hang out with and which conferences we go to, um, who we talk to. So, um, you know, we're, we're reinforcing it right now. <laughs> the fact that you connected with me and, and that we're doing this makes it feel like, yeah, well, people want to hear this. And, um, and, and, but it, it certainly, it feels like it, it is growing organically and, um, and that we're reaching more minds and it, it, it's, that's where it's the thinking that needs to change that, that will lead to, lead to the behavior change. And, it's sort of once once you see it, once you realize uh, the power of soil and, and its critical importance, you can't forget it. You know, so it's like, and then you start seeing things through the soil lens, and it it really changes everything. And so I I think, um, and it's it's right there. You know, it's. There's so many cliches. I'm sorry. I'll stay away from. <laughs> it's right there. It's uh, anyways. Um, uh, I but I I think yes. I think we're we're close. If if we're not seeing it, it's right around the corner. That's beautiful. I think well, that's a great place to leave it. I've been speaking with Eric Becker, and Eric is the chief investment officer of Clean Yield Asset Management, and he's also co-founder of Slow Money Boston and Slow Money Vermont, as well as many other things. Um, if you're interested in finding out more about Clean Yield, you can go to their website, www.cleanyield.com. And thank you, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of Designing Paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. 
That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.